Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's episode is the latest in our series looking at the state of the union. And today we're looking at the past, present and future of perhaps its most contentious part, Northern Ireland. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. It's a great pleasure joining Helen and I today. We have Richard Burke, who is Professor of Political Thought, Neve Gallagher, who is Lecturer in Modern British and Irish History. They have both written extensively about the history of Ireland and its relationship to the Union. There are some big questions here, and I'm going to say, you know, each of them might take a book to answer, and you have sort of written those books yourselves. So this might be a bit of a breakneck tour from the past through to the present. We'll see how we get on. Richard, if I start with a a really big question, if you had to characterise what kind of entity was created by the Anglo-Irish Union in 1800, just under a century after the Anglo-Scottish Union, what what did it bring into being? What kind of political entity did it bring into being? Well, just to say very briefly at the outset that, incidentally, the Union had been contemplated before the Scottish Union. It had been debated in the 17th century because Ireland had been militarily conquered and had experienced, roughly speaking, three major ways of colonization or plantation. But this built in a sort of principle of instability and left the potential for resistance. A major moment of resistance came with the 1798 rebellion. Now, the union was a response to that. And it was, in essence, therefore, above all, a means of pacification and pacification through incorporation. And that meant incorporating the Kingdom of Ireland into a full parliamentary union with Britain, and that included a customs union. This became law in 1801. One complication, which gives you some further detailed sense of what the union was, was that uh, the union with Ireland came without Catholic emancipation which meant that Catholics could not uh, stand as members of Parliament. Catholic emancipation did arrive, of course, in 1829, but by then a political movement based on disaffection had already commenced. That was the project for repealing the Union, already hot on the heels of the Union. Uh, That was spearheaded by Daniel O'Connell. In material terms, the Union added a population of 5 million new subjects to the United Kingdom, England in 1801 had a population of 8 million, to give you some sense of that, and the population of Ireland rose to about 8 million in 1840. So the um, demographics are of some interest. But I I would say the principal addition in a way that Ireland brought, leaving aside, you know, the cultural specificities, was a new dimension of grievance. And this became gradually supercharged then through the rest of the 19th century. So, so Neve, would you say that the failure of the Union was written in its birth, in a sense, if this was a pacification project, if it was a project almost designed to create grievance, in contrast to the Anglo-Scottish Union, was this something that was rickety from the beginning? Well, I think that's an interesting 
question, David, and it could be read in multiple ways. But over the course of the century, I mean, there are significant changes in the relationship in the union between Ireland and Britain. Most notably in the mid 19th century, you have the famine of the 1840s in which maybe a million people died, two million people emigrated within a handful of years, and it permanently impacted the demography of the country. I mean, Ireland's the only country in Europe today that has a lower population than it did in 1845, which is really a striking legacy of of what happened. So that, I mean, that cast a sort of a framework for later nationalist movements to refer to it and to previous movements like 1798 that Richard has mentioned to begin a campaign to, to leave the Union or exit the Union. And indeed, there had been an earlier formation of this under Daniel O'Connell. I'm sure Richard can say a bit more about, about that and his repeal for the Union. But by the end of the 19th century, certainly there was a movement for a reformulation of that relationship. It wasn't necessarily to begin with a desire to completely leave the union. That was sort of a movable feast. And they changed depending on time and context between different nationalists who had different ideas about the future of what Ireland might be. How far do you think it, either you could answer this is, is that we could argue that actually right from the beginning, the Catholic emancipation issue showed that the politics at Westminster just couldn't actually cope with Irish politics and what a parliamentary union with um, Ireland meant. Because obviously for Pitt, Irish emancipation was supposed to be part of it. He couldn't have conceived, I think, of doing the union for a geopolitical reason without that following in terms of domestic um, politics. But that wasn't what happened because of the king's veto. So could we then see the pressures that we're going to see in the um, the UK union in relation to Ireland by the end of the, the 20th century as a reoccurrence of that original problem whereby Parliament simply couldn't cope with what this union meant? I would say the question is, therefore, was the situation after 1801 recoverable or was it doomed? And I would resist the idea that it was absolutely doomed. There were multiple attempts to recover the situation. First of all, disestablishment of the Church of Ireland in 1869, and then a series of land acts which were to improve the tenancy conditions and ultimately to introduce peasant proprietorship. Now, added to these were attempts at um, constitutional improvement, if you like. And these were a series of home rule bills. There were three in all in 1886, 1893 and uh, 1912. These were, of course, not in one sense intended to end union as such, but to end the incorporating union. They were to devolve power to Ireland. And I suppose there's a question of whether that could have worked in any sense whatsoever, which would have been a recovery of the situation. Also, there was a period of constructive unionism, roughly speaking, from 1895 to 1905. And they were attempts to really improve by welfare measures the Irish position within the union. So whilst there were weaknesses in the political architecture, I don't think the architecture was doomed to failure, although the pressures introduced by the prospect of home rule, which introduced new areas of polarisation with Irish and one has to say also British politics, that meant managing the vessel from then on was going to be very difficult. And actually, that's what failed. So I think the crisis moment comes not in 18. Oh, one that I suppose is retrievable, but rather in the aftermath of 1886. And then what finally broke it? I mean, this is like almost everything in modern politics, deeply implicated with the First World War. What do you think was the decisive break point? Unpredictable escalation as parties 
anticipating an existential threat, intensified their demands. Uh, So whilst the home rule movement, sometimes described as nationalism in Ireland, was seeking a a devolved administration, ultimately, as a result of the, the failure to deliver that, Irish Catholic opinion, if you like, became ever more committed to independence. And as it upped its demands, Northern opinion, opinion what subsequently became the six counties of Northern Ireland, became ever more alarmed about the prospects of being subject to southern jurisdiction. So there's the great parting of the ways, I would say. And Neve, if you had to characterise the political entity that, that was then created after partition, after the partition of the island of Ireland, the the place that we now call Northern Ireland, in its origins, what kind of a political entity was it? And what was its original relationship to the rest of the UK? Yeah, well, I think to understand that, we need to understand a bit more about unionism itself. So Irish unionists had protested against Home Rule for Ireland since 1886, uh, as Richard mentioned. But by the, the new century, by 1905, unionism had shifted northwards towards Ulster. And in 1905, there was the creation of the Ulster Unionist Council, which was a distinct body that sat really outside the Irish Unionist Alliance, so the Irish Unionists previously who had protested against Home Rule. And this sort of move northwards towards Ulster characterised and still characterises much of the debate around the third Home Rule crisis from 1912 through to 14. This is important because of thinking about what happens in partition. Ulster unionism began to have a more sort of um, territorially bounded definition of itself. So I think previously we can say Irish unionists had much more of a British sense of unionism, which was outwards, not necessarily defined solely by the the island of Britain or indeed the islands um, that are Ireland and Britain, but saw itself as something more global. Ulster unionists became more territorially minded and I think this helped to really characterise the new state that was born. Unionism in Ulster became very concerned with defence of its own territory, which in the end were six counties that became the new Northern Irish state, three of which, which are still part of Ulster, were left in the south. So the after 1921, what was called the Free State. So these six counties of Ulster really became a, a homeland of sorts for unionists who felt that they had successfully defended themselves against the imposition of home rule to Ireland. And thus defence of that border really became the raison d'etre for the uh, for the new state. And there are many implications of that for the next 50 years. I wonder if we could again sort of think about this in terms of the whole position of the, the UK Union, because do you think it's fair to say that, again, looking at it from Westminster, that what the creation of Northern Ireland does for them is to just try and shut the Irish question as it had become known before the First World War, out of Westminster politics. Because if we look at what had happened before the war, we see a whole set of contests about home rule, not just for Ireland, but for um, Scotland too. We see the issue about the the Welsh um, church. Uh, And then what we see otherwise outside the Northern Ireland issue in the 1920s onwards, really, you could argue, I think, till the 1960s, is that the question of the union of Britain sort of set to rest. Not obviously permanently, it's going to come back but it's a, it's a relatively stable period do you think in some sense that it w- this was kind of like the british state saying we can't deal with northern ireland any irish matters anymore northern ireland we're just going to compartmentalize it out from westminster politics 
Well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. Um, I think there was no clear, clear sense of that, even particularly in 1920, when the Government of Ireland Act, which partitioned Ireland, happened. I mean, in the previous 30 years, you could even go back further. There had been a multiple range of solutions proposed for solving the so-called Irish question. You know, interesting, interesting name. But the idea of federalism within the UK and then within the wider empire were, you know, alternatives that were proposed by different people at the time. So Joseph Chamberlain had raised the idea back in 1886 of sort of a federal UK. Winston Churchill revived it again in, I think it was 1911, 1912, when he himself proposed a, a model of devolution that looks not entirely dissimilar to, to what we have today. Parliaments for Scotland and Wales, but the creation of different legislative authorities within England, kind of resembling the greater devolutionary power today that we have in Greater Manchester, for example. So, you know, these were all ideas that were on the table. And even in 1920, whenever the Government of Ireland Act was passed, there had been other options that were considered. And it was very much a top down solution. It was something that was passed pretty quickly, not with a huge amount of endorsement within Cabinet. Even, you know, Ulster Unionists themselves were divided over the issue. I think more than 80 Unionists protested against the solution that was proposed, not least because it left them in the south in, in what would become the free state. So I don't think there was an inevitability about it in the, the formulation that it took. And it seems to me that it, it was passed in, in 1920, also with the hope that actually Ireland would itself become united at some point again in the future. There was a creation of a Council of Ireland, which was meant to promote good relations between North and South. And indeed, many of the politicians talking at the time hoped that they would see some sort of reunification between North and South within the context of the British Empire. But in fact, one of the only legacies of the 1920 Act is the formation of partition that has really come to stay. The Council of Ireland never lasted and was overdone by the, the treaty of the next year with, with what becomes the 26 counties over at the end of the War of Independence between 1919 to 21. So really, there's a whole complicated set of things going on. But in a nutshell, no, I don't think it was a sort of planned thing that became a sort of definite option that everyone agreed about. It was passed in a hurry and it just unexpectedly came to stay. Richard, can I ask you a version of the question I began with, but this time in relation to Northern Ireland? So by the time we get to the late 1960s and what's come to be known as the Troubles, would you say that the problems of Northern Ireland were written in its origin or was the period from 1920 through to the late 1960s a distinct period in Irish politics and then something happened that produced a new dynamic? Is this a story of continuity or should we see the 1960s as significant change? Well, there are changes with the 1960s, but I do think the predicament of the late 1960s was actually substantially contained, as it were, within the the 1920 to 22 solution. That is to say, for instance, proportional representation was abolished in local government um, uh, elections in 1923 in Northern Ireland, and then in 1929 abolished in, in general elections. And in effect, from that point onwards, Northern Ireland became in practice a single party state with a large entrenched but disempowered minority giving rise to the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland at one point declaring, all I boast is that we are a Protestant parliament and a Protestant state. So I don't think that was a recipe for durable stability, although you're right, there was an equilibrium which obtained from, let's say, 1922-23 until uh, the late 1960s. 
the 1960s did bring a new mood, I would say, the mood that we know of as the 60s. The civil rights movement in the United States had an impact on Northern Ireland. Also, the very importantly, I think, is the increase in the Catholic student body in universities in Northern Ireland as a result of post-war British education acts. So there is a sort of important, what we might call cultural shift, which gives rise to ideological changes. In the, in the aftermath of that, a civil rights movement emerges. It begins to stage marches. These begin to be, as it were, contained by the security forces at the time, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and, and the Armed Paramilitary Police Force, the specials. So a confrontation between a sort of protest movement, call it the civil rights movement, and the Northern Ireland state begins to escalate after 68 and especially through 69 when basically in that summer, in the August of 69, in Derry and in Belfast, violence becomes widespread, the domestic forces of law and order can't cope, and British troops intervene, though importantly they intervene in support of the civil power, so they're being put at the disposal of this regime, and I suppose that is the beginning of a whole new complexity. But I think at that point, and especially after disbanding the Stormont government in 1972, at that point, British governments, a series of British governments, do seek the um, introduction or the negotiation of a power sharing agreement. So that effect becomes policy after 1972. But by this point, all the vociferous energies of, of protest and containment as they confronted one another have been so radically uncorked that it's going to be very difficult to put them back in the bottle again. And that, of course, takes till 1998 when a peace settlement is finally negotiated. So that, roughly speaking, is the situation from the end of the 1960s. If we put that in a bit more structural political terms, do you think that the essential problem for the Northern Irish state from 1921 to the 1960s was the political problem of majoritarianism under devolution and the fact that the the British state just wanted not to look at what the consequences of that was. And then that what we see, if we cast that back into political terms in the 1970s, uh, after direct rules come from London, is an attempt to, or recognition that actually power sharing has to replace majority rule. And then the difficulty of actually constructing conditions in which that can happen. Yes, I think uh, that's exactly right, Helen. I think it's important probably to say that the Northern Ireland state did not conceive of itself as aiming at, if you like, the oppression of its uh, minority population. But structurally, that is sort of an unavoidable outcome that you do have, insofar as we think of democracies as as systems of, uh, of government in which parties alternate, there was no alternation of parties. So it was a one-party government. So there was a sort of seething discontent beneath. And there is then a recognition uh, on the part of the British government, which I think you're right, certainly post-1945, did seek to disregard or remove the question of Northern Ireland as a priority issue from its agenda. But then when confronted with this once again after 69, I think it then aimed for basically a new constitutional settlement altogether internally. It wasn't only an internal settlement, but it had um, it did include a radical piece of internal reform, whereby the blocs within Northern Ireland were now obliged to share the administration of the government. 
Neve, I'm going to ask you another version of the continuity and change question. So if we then look at the Northern Ireland that emerges post 97-98 with the success of the peace process using all of these, I don't know if they're cliches or not, the Irish question, the troubles, the peace process, but they are the markers. Do you see a radical shift? Because you've, you've touched really interestingly on the ways in which a lot of what we see now are echoes of earlier schemes, earlier plans, earlier attempts to devolve, to reconstruct, to think about this fearsomely complicated question of how you integrate this part of the UK into the rest. Do you see post-1998 Northern Ireland as a completely new kind of political entity or do you see continuity with the past? Yes, and I mean, it sounds a bit like an exam question, I would say, David, you know, the Irish problem, the Irish question, etc. Um, what, what similarities might be between these terms or not? Yeah, so I think there, uh, at some point over the 20th century, the dynamics within Northern Ireland become seen as a sort of a problem within Northern Ireland that doesn't apply to the rest of Britain. And I think that's due to differing conceptions of British national identity as well that change and evolve after the Second World War. The solution from 1998 tries to address the problem in Northern Ireland in actually uh, a creative way. So there had been talks beforehand and, and they'd failed for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons that the talks leading up to the 1998 agreement are a success is because they are situated within wider frameworks. The European Union, America, you know, they're all having an interest in the stake in what's happening in Northern Ireland. So the problem of Northern Ireland is taken directly out of the UK specific context and placed in a wider context. So in that sense, it can resemble earlier solutions insofar as it's not just a solution that was proposed for the six counties alone. People are thinking about wider alternatives, but these are different wider alternatives. Obviously, the European Union is a different entity. The rise of America after the First World War. That wasn't the case pre the First World War, of course. And by the end of the 20th century, of course, America is the leading superpower. So these are these are different contexts in which the problem is being considered. And I think they are they're very helpful contexts, not least to bringing Irish Republicans to, to the table, because it's showing that it's not just a British question or a British concern, but it's a wider one in other frameworks. So that, that's different. What might be similar about it is that the groupings that are discussed and, and which are la- later part of the Good Friday Agreement, you can you can download it and read it online, are nationalists versus unionists. And in a way, the Good Friday Agreement leaves intact these categories. And these categories, of course, were very much there prior to the First World War, even up to 1920. So in a way, it, it cuts out the, the agreement cuts out other possibilities of identity for people to go here around and it builds in safeguards, constitutional safeguards for both nationalist and unionist communities, which means that in effect, it kind of continues the legacies of these categories, which we're still living with today. And it'll be interesting to see how or if that can, that can shift in the future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 
so in a way, you then get to almost the fundamental issue here, which is if the way that this is carved up is nationalists and unionists, particularly that term unionist, we've been talking about this in, in other contexts, in the context of the rest of the UK and the language of unionism. What kind of unionists are Northern Irish unionists now? What What is the union that, that, that they, and I say they, obviously there are many different identities within that term, but what is the union that they believe in? Well, I would say um, that the Democratic Unionist Party brand of unionism is itself a form of Protestant nationalism in Northern Ireland, and therefore a radical departure from unionism in its original conception since the 1801 union meant uh, an incorporating union as we've already agreed. So the very fact, first of all, of devolution to Northern Ireland is one ending of, of the union. Second of all, incidentally, in the 1922 treaty with Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland was actually momentarily rendered part of an island state with an option to secede. So it's now given secession rights, which is again a transformation of the union. In 1949, Northern Ireland, the right was bestowed upon it to determine its fate by a vote within the Stormont Assembly. And then in 1973, the principle of referendum was introduced. That's to say the fate of Northern Ireland could be determined by a popular referendum. All of these measures, and that has been government policy since, and that's also built into the Good Friday Agreement, incidentally, that Northern Ireland can leave the union at the point where a majority of its population decides to do so. So that's no longer a union in the normal sense of the United States of America or the British and Irish Union as it was. So in the face of those developments, I think feeling threatened by the prospect of being corralled under a Southern Irish government, unionism in the North has become a new phenomenon, very much focused on its own domestic welfare and its own constituency. So Northern Irish politics as a result is, as we might say, incredibly democratic. That's to say demotic. It is driven by fearful constituencies. And therefore, unionism has, in that sense, been radically transformed. It has no relationship to 19th century unionism, really. But of course, you know, they are representatives of a constituency. And I myself think that these are the categories that are there. So we have to work with them. Richard, I was really struck by something that you said there, which was about that this isn't an ordinary union once a part of it has the right to secede. And you made that as a specific point about Northern Ireland. But isn't it the case that this is what's distinctive about the UK Union as a whole, is that it has actually recognised a, a right to secession, not actually just for Northern Ireland, but for Scotland too. That was made explicit in the referendum in 2014. But you could argue that once that the, the Welsh people and the Scottish people were treated as sort of constituent unions of whether they wanted devolution via referendums, that that implicit right that they are in the union only by their express consent was established across the union. The only part of the union that you could say hasn't clearly got a right to secede from the union is England. Yes, I, I agree with that. But of course, that's the situation as it emerged. And it's a departure from the principles of the 1801 union. So what I'm saying is the 1801 union no longer exists precisely because plebiscitary secessionist option has emerged. So compared to the 1860s in the United States, you know, 
that principle didn't obtain in the civil war was fought to retain the union. And similarly, of course, the Conservative Party had many elements within it in the early 20th century that were prepared to go to civil war to preserve the union. So the very fact of enabling a redesign, including secession from the union by means of plebiscitary vote, means that the union is no longer what it was. I I don't say that it can't be a union on that basis uh, going forward. Of course it can. But the problem is that there's a massive demographic shift going on in Ireland, in Northern Ireland specifically, since the 1950s, such that when the Troubles began, 33% of the population was Catholic. And now, after the next census, which will come uh, this summer, there will no longer, in all probability, be a culturally Protestant majority in Northern Ireland. What this means in Northern Ireland is that the existential question, or this jurisdictional question, if you like, is inescapable. And the very fact of its inescapability means that the pacification programme is unable to bed down and take root. That's what the real threat to the 1998 agreement is. Not in my view that there's these continuing rival parties, that's the situation after every civil war, but that they have everything to fight for still because the jurisdictional status quo of Northern Ireland has not, by definition under the agreement, been settled. And the worst nightmare of unionism is now becoming true that they are no longer, they're no longer a majority in the assembly. They have the smallest uh, majority in local government. And going forward, their numbers are dwindling. And also, incidentally, they're no longer quite united in the same way. So there is a sort of time bomb ticking. And I think even with the best one in the world, it is no longer possible not to address that. And Neve, you talked about the context for 1998, and a big part of it was that the UK was then a member of another union, the European Union, and that is also a union from which it turns out it is possible to secede by plebiscitary politics. So now Northern Irish politics exists in a post-Brexit UK context, and that potentially, again, could make a huge difference, and we're already beginning to see some parts of that. So we're not totally clear what the future shape of this is going to be. The Northern Ireland Protocol is still a work in progress. But could that be the decisive, do you think, contextual shift of the current era? Well, I mean, that's that's a tough one. We, we do have to kind of see how it plays out. It's been very difficult, Northern Irish politics, over the last um, handful of years. And, you know, as somebody from there, I, I find it disappointing that so many of the old political questions and divisions have come once again to the fore. Now, it's not saying that they weren't there. Of course, they were there, but now they're very prominent in discourse. That's just disappointing because uh, um, Northern Ireland itself had come on quite a, quite a long way, I'd, I'd felt. So could it be decisive? Well, certainly it's been used by parties at the moment as being a decisive issue. So the DUP, who Richard mentioned, are trying to harness Northern Ireland Protocol and blame it on Europe and on the Republic of Ireland as to why the Northern Ireland Protocol stands. And there are divisions within that party itself, whereby there is an even harder right side of the party that wants to imagine take a a leadership bid come the next elections, standing on uh, let's get rid of the Northern Ireland Protocol and do all we can to to stop that platform. that's all very difficult. And at the same time, the question of Brexit and leaving the European Union has revived the issue of unification by Sinn Féin, which is now a party both in Northern Ireland, but also in the South as well. 
So actually there is now discussion. I mean, discussion is too generous a word because that implies a conversation, but there is talk of uh, unification and certainly Sinn Féin have been talking about that quite recently for quite a bit. So these are big things to be talking about. They're very different stances people have taken on, on the question. It just remains to see how, how that actually re- is resolved. David, I'm not sure I can you know have a crystal ball and, and give you a, a guess on that one. What do you think is the interaction between the pressure for independence from the SNP in Scotland and these questions um, for Northern Ireland? Because one way of looking at it might be to say, if we looked at it in terms of identity, that the, the unionist case is articulated in terms of British identity. But that if we look at what's happening in the UK union in the Scottish part of it, and to some extent now perhaps in, in, in Wales as well, it looks like there's a pretty strong weakening of British identity. Actually, you could say there's a weakening of British identity in England as as well. So if Britain is feeling less British, where does that leave the Northern Irish British? Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, to come in on that, I think the word British and, and having a national identity that is British is itself a very malleable entity and, and means different things to different people. One of the striking things I felt in, in Northern Ireland over the 2014 Scottish um, independence referendum was in a way the lack of engagement with that issue from the unionist community who themselves have and talk about very historic links with Scotland, not least the Presbyterian connection, which was very important in in the original plantations that Richard mentioned. So the lack of engagement with what Scotland wanted to do was was quite striking because it does suggest that a British identity uh, for unionists, for some unionists, again, you know, there'll be different unionists with different conceptions of Britishness, but for a very powerful expression of unionism, often articulated by the DUP, unionism and Britishness do not seem to necessarily be too concerned with the other constituent parts of that union. They are concerned about Northern Ireland and its status, its relationship to the monarchy, its relationship to to Westminster. I'm not sure they're particularly concerned about, say, movements for succession in, in either Scotland or indeed Wales, which is another interesting point. Richard, do you think that Northern Irish politics is sort of unfairly characterised as being the most binary bit of UK politics. So the categories, unionist or nationalist, Irish or British. Um, and yet when the history that you've both described here is so complicated and, and so much of it actually, it's not just a compromise, but a kind of fudge between these categories. And so now when we look at the future, there's a temptation to think that once again, we're coming to a kind of fork in the road. There's a an existential, as you put it, choice to be made. You are either one thing or another. And yet there might be a whole range of possible political, if not solutions, then compromises somewhere between these binaries, other forms of devolution, other forms of political organisation. Do you think Northern Ireland is is less binary than it looks? Or do you think it is actually the binary bit of the UK? Well, I think politically, it is binary. uh, And I think it is binary for the reason that the very question of its own status has been an inescapable question since its inception. So if you remember the level and tenor of debate around Brexit in Britain in the period from 2016, the intense politicization, the polarization, basically that is the situation regarding the question of jurisdiction in Ireland since 1886. And Um, above all in Northern Ireland since 1920, and especially since 1968. 
So hence the divisiveness within the culture. But on the other hand, I completely agree with you that it's incumbent upon us all to shift the debate away from these somewhat artificial polarities. So, for instance, Irish nationalism begins as a war with home rule, but home rule is not a species of nationalism anyway because it's devolution within the union. Similarly, we've seen unionism multiply transformed um, even since uh, 1968. I think it would be an enormous service to everyone concerned if we precisely focus on modes of government rather than the identity question. I mean, in a way, the identity questions are not of the essence in the sense that you can port your identity anywhere. You can be a Northern Irish British person in Canada. The real question is the structure of government. And of course, there are multiple possibilities for this, both within the British Union and within uh, under an Irish unity scenario. So I think the unfortunate thing is both main parties in Northern Ireland do not focus on the question of quality of government. That's exactly what they should do, rather than on the jurisdictional status of the entity, which ultimately might be indifferent if the system of government either way functioned optimally. And do you think there's a possibility here of a kind of, not not a binary moment, but a big bang moment in that if, we're right in the middle of a, very specific political crisis for the SNP. So who knows what's going to happen? But if uh, we are moving towards another Scottish independence referendum and and one that could be won, um, and there are growing pressures for various reasons in post-Brexit Britain for a rethink of the constitution, does Northern Ireland have a better chance of, of rethinking its own politics in that wider context of a rethinking of the UK constitutional settlement? Or do you think that Northern Irish politics has a better chance if it is treated as sort of sui generis and it, and it does it on its own? Well, I do think it would be better if it was treated as a union-wide debate rather than a Northern Ireland ex- exceptionist debate. Need mention Joseph Chamberlain. I mean, the programme for Home Rule then was Home Rule All Round. And therefore, the idea was to create a negotiated federal structure applying to all equally. Uh, And I think that would certainly be congenial to unionism. But I do think it's the case that some kind of crunch moment is coming just as a result of, first of all, demographic shifts. And second of all, the way in which already the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol in relation to the Brexit deal is being politicised, in in my view, not very intelligently by the Democratic Unionist Party, simply because it's setting itself up for for failure, which is to, to scrap the protocol. But scrapping the protocol leaves one in the position of resorting to all the other positions that have already been scrapped. And the protocol is a United Kingdom position So there's something obtuse about seeking to be the intelligent thing would be to make it work optimally and make the union attractive. But that is not the path down which the Democratic Unionist Party is currently traveling. In fact, they're launching a legal challenge against the protocol by judicial review and are being joined by the Ulster Unionist Party as well. I don't think that is in their best interest, or I should better say, is in the interest of their constituency. On the other side, of course, it should be said that Sinn Féin uses an impending referendum as a threat. And I certainly don't mean it in those terms. I'm just saying and uh, a Sunday Times poll says most Northern Ireland citizens by a bare majority favour a border poll and that it's built within the Good Friday Agreement that the Secretary of State, when he adjudges that there could be a majority for secession, will introduce a referendum. So it's all there and waiting to happen as the Protestant 
the majority ceases to exist as a majority. So all I'm saying is standing back from the feverish animosity which all this evokes, it would be foolish to stick one's head in the sand and ignore the fact that some species of constitutional crisis in the course of the next generation, possibly 10, 12 years, uh, may be unavoidable. So we have to debate what the shape of a new polity would be, either within the UK or within a new unity structure, whatever that might be on the island of Ireland. What would you say, Richard, though, to the, the argument that says, look, when Ireland, so we're talking about, I'm talking about before the, the First World War, when that question gets tied up with the broader political constitutional question for the, the union, the possibility of, of home rule all round, that what it runs into is the difficulties of England's position in the um, union. And there aren't really remedies to this. And it's not, I think, um, unreasonable to suggest that what would happen under a home rule all all round is is that an English parliament would simply be too dominant. And that actually, um, rather than protecting the position of the other parts of the union, it would make it more difficult for them. So isn't there an argument that says that actually because there is something really quite specific about the position of Northern Ireland in relation to the Republic and for the demographic reason that you've just been talking about, that the question has to be thought about independently of what do we do about the rest of the UK Union? I do see grounds for that, of course. But all I'm saying is, I think from an Ulster Unionist perspective, connecting a debate about Northern Ireland to a debate about the union and its structure altogether, rather than threatening them with being absorbed into the South, would be preferable for them. But I think the debate's going to happen anyway, because I I think that Northern Ireland unionism is disposed to avoid this discussion rather than trying to derive political advantage from it. So I think there's a slightly doomed situation there. Neve, can I ask you a last question, which is, it, it relates to this, and it's a sort of the mirror image of it in a way. So when we talk about reunification, do you think, again, there's a tendency to think of that as a straightforward category, whereas in fact, the possible range of outcomes within that is extremely wide. And there are lots of different things that the, the different groups who are in favour of the reunification of the island of Ireland actually understand by that possible future. And again, that merely the question of what sort of constitutional arrangement that will give rise to is itself as potentially contentious, but also wide ranging as any of these other debates. It's not sort of either or, either this happens or the island is reunified. Reunification could mean a hundred different things. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I don't know what political formation that would actually take. But I know there's lots of different, often contradictory reasons that lots of groups will have about this question. After the Anglo-Irish Treaty, there's a strong element in the historiography about the success of the 26 counties being very much integral to the loss of Northern Ireland, which was itself a very difficult and tricky part of the country. And now this question will arise again with the reunification debate. And I think politicians in the south of Ireland are very wary about that. They're also very, very aware of the fact that unionists still do not want to be a part of the republic, even though many of those initial arguments themselves have now died, such as the strength of the Catholic Church, which was a major point upon which unionists rallied against home rule in the early part of the period. That, of course, has changed in the South, not least with very radical reform in the last 10 years over the issue of abortion or gay marriage, for example. So that's one of them. Even the the question of the empire, which unionists in in Ulster had originally tied themselves to, 
is now a very different question today as well, particularly in, in Britain as the empire is looked at again as an entity that actually had really not nice undertones and very real episodes of violence and exploitation and coercion. And these things are coming to the fore now, particularly as we consider more the question of, of race and what happened and sort of structural legacies of race towards people of colour. So there's a sort of disconnect in unionist fears of the South today based on new political realities, but still it's very much there. So I think it's a difficult question. Southern politicians will be aware that not everybody in Northern Ireland will be happy. They'll also be aware that Republicans in Northern Ireland, whom they've tried to distance themselves from, will themselves have a very different view on, on the question of reunification. And unfortunately, the, the fact for both of the sides is that over the last 100 years, there has been no attempt really for either side to possibly understand some of the concerns of the other. And they've been reinforcing their own positions through use of, of particular episodes in history and a lack of conversation between the South and the North, which is very much a feature of the political landscape in the mid 20th century. And then of course, after the, the Civil War, um, which effectively is the Troubles, means that there hasn't been a lot of dialogue. So there has been much discussion or conversation and there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of defensiveness. And I mean, I think these things, they would need to be overcome or at least addressed in some way, um, given what Richard said and the inevitability of a constitutional shift or at least discussion in the next 10 to 15 years. And Richard, one very last question for you. Do you think, given that the Republic of Ireland, the Irish state itself, for most of its history, it was a fairly rigid and inflexible state, but it's acquired a reputation more recently, particularly, for instance, around the abortion referendum and the use of citizens' assemblies and a, a, a more experimental democracy. And after all, it's also a state that has much more uh, familiarity with different kinds of coalition politics and so on, that actually the Republic of Ireland in its 21st century guise might be a more flexible state than the UK state and more open to the kinds of discussions, new kinds of democratic or deliberative forms of politics that will be needed to make progress? Yes, well, f first of all, I, I would want to say that I wouldn't want to push the unity question. I mean, I would rather that it wasn't structurally built into the Good Friday Agreement itself, but it's there and um, and it's not going away. Would the South be potentially flexible in relation to this? Well, it's true there's been, as it were, a liberalisation of Southern politics uh, in my lifetime. And we do, in the light of that, need to think about what potential transformation in the structure of government under a unity scenario might might look like the south might absorb the north there could be a federal link with with the north um, a confederal relationship between north and south the polity as a whole federated more widely in relation to the the regions East-West links would have to be discussed also on an ongoing basis. We'd have to address whether the Southern Constitution altogether changes. And with that, the, the Northern Constitution, I have to say there, I believe the South would be very rigid and, and not flexible. There's the question of what would happen, the absorption of one million British citizens into the South which would spontaneously require a redrafting of the 1937 Irish constitution anyway, since they'd have to be entitled to vote uh, in presidential elections. What would happen to the police, welfare provision, the British health system is superior, the monarchy, flags, anthems, broadcasting, the BBC broadcasts into Northern Ireland and therefore indirectly into the South. So all these things, um, I think it would be better to discuss them 
And if it were shown that the South were incapable of flexibility, well, then that would be a great argument for the union. And I would prefer if unionism had, as it were, the self-confidence to confront that rather than, as it were, sort of an outright rejectionism, which will defeat them in the end. That's my fundamental point. We're going to have more episodes on the union. We're going to do Wales. We're going to come back to the English question. And we are definitely going to come back to Scotland too. That's all over the next few months. If you would like to support Talking Politics and History of Ideas by signing up for a version of the main podcast, Talking Politics, with our adverts in the middle, it's very easy to do. You just need to follow the link wherever you get this podcast for Talking Politics Plus. Next week on History of Ideas, I'm talking about the great Rosa Luxemburg. And next week on Talking Politics, we are going to be looking at Keir Starmer and the budget. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.